can find a way. Idil Elvirish presents. In this program of We Can Find a Way, my guest is Colin Rule, who was the director of the online dispute resolution for eBay and PayPal, and who is currently the CEO of Mediate.com. Welcome back to another program of We Can Find a Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Idil Elverish. In today's program, my guest is Colin Rule. From 2003 to 2011, Colin was the director of the online dispute resolution for eBay and PayPal. Naturally, this led us to talk a lot about online dispute resolution, also known as ODR. He and I discuss how ODR can be designed to fit different services, how it can contribute to access to justice, ethics of ODR, e-courts, and much, much more. Currently, Colin is the president and CEO of Mediate.com. Colin holds a BA from Haverford College and a master's degree from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government in Conflict Resolution and Technology. He served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Eritrea. He has many awards in conflict resolution, published in ADR journals, and overall worked in the dispute resolution field for more than 25 years as a mediator, trainer, and consultant. He's currently co-chair of the advisory board of the National Center for Technology and Dispute Resolution at UMass Amherst and a non-resident fellow at the Gold Center for Conflict Resolution at Stanford Law School. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me, Colin, one more time. Absolutely. Can you please tell me how ODR, Online Dispute Resolution, come about? In what years? What prompted it? It was the back half of the 90s when e-commerce really started to take off. People started to say, well, how are we going to resolve these disputes that arise between people that are interacting online? And there was a meeting that happened in the United States in 1996. But that was the first time they used the term online dispute resolution. What happened was Ethan Catch, who's a professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in the United States, he started something called the Center for Information Technology and Dispute Resolution. And he started an online conference called ADR Cyber Week. And that was when I joined in. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, what are we going to call this? So we decided to call it ODR. And really, it came out of e-commerce. It was all these people who were buying and selling things online, and they needed to find a way to work them out. So we started a bunch of projects to focus on those kind of transactional cross-border buyer-seller disputes. ODR grew from there and has now gone into many other areas like the courts mm-hmm. and family disputes. So you had lots of disputes repeating each other because you mentioned buyer and seller and e-commerce. I'm thinking exactly. this was like repetitious, streamlined, almost copycat disputes. Uh, Ethan started a pilot with eBay to resolve disputes. And I think the two kinds of disputes that they focused on initially were buyer-reported disputes. So if you go online to an e-commerce site and you buy an item, you know, there's really two things that can happen that might cause a problem. One is you buy it and you never get it. You know, we call those item-not-received disputes. So where is it? Did it get delivered to the wrong address? Did somebody steal it off your porch? Did the seller never send it? And the other one is where you, you buy it and you get it, but you're not happy with it for some reason. And maybe they said it was new, but it's clearly used. Maybe it was misdescribed. Maybe you want to return it for a full refund, or maybe you want to get a replacement item, or maybe you just want a partial refund, you know, so you can go clean it, for instance, if it's an article of clothing. So those two kinds of disputes, that's really a lot of 
online tangible good disputes fit into those categories. And you're right, they're very repetitious. So, you know, at eBay, by the time I left, we were doing 60 million disputes a year. Six zero million disputes. That was in 2011. I'm sure the number is much higher at eBay now. But Amazon is much bigger than eBay, so they're doing even more disputes than that. And now there's companies like Alibaba. So I think we estimate that there's something like a billion cross-border e-commerce disputes per year. And and different websites around the world have different mechanisms for dealing with them. But at eBay, we built the resolution center, and I think a lot of websites now have resolution centers for buyers when they encounter problems. But there's other kinds of issues that can emerge too. For instance. Sometimes a seller will sell an item, but then the buyer doesn't follow through and pay. That's actually not a buyer-initiated dispute. That's a seller-initiated dispute. So we call those unpaid item disputes. But you're right that they are usually low value. Our average dispute value at eBay was like 75 bucks. And the parties don't really know each other that well. So they're not really relationship-based. It's much more factual. Did you send me this? Was it new? Was it misdescribed? You know, and there's a monetary resolution as opposed to, you know, some other kind of resolution. So, yeah, that was really where ODR started, those kinds of cases. Do all of these cases get until the very end? Many disputes do not. You know, for instance, the number one resolution we have on a percentage basis at eBay to item not received disputes is the item arrives. So a lot of times the dispute is filed. It's like, well, hey, I paid for this and I didn't get it. Where is it? So a lot of it's just kind of information exchange, follow up. But do you have a tracking number? Do you prove you shipped it? Can we find it? Oh, we found it. It's in the post office and it should be there in three days. And then the item arrives. So a lot of times it's just kind of coaching people along the way. You know, oftentimes a, a buyer will be concerned that they have a problem and then they later realize, oh no, they don't have a problem. For instance, if you got this new DVD, which was in great shape and you plugged it into your Xbox, it had a lot of data on the DVD. And if your little lens inside your Xbox was dirty, it couldn't read the DVD. So lots of buyers started to file complaints and they said, this is a a broken item because I bought it, they gave it to me, I unwrapped it, I put it in my machine and now it won't work. So I want my money back. Now the seller was saying, hey, no, you know, you need to clean your lens on your Xbox player and here's instructions as to how to do that. And then people would clean their lens and then the DVD would work. So there's just a lot of issues like that, coaching people through the dispute. The best way to resolve a dispute is to prevent it in the first place. A lot of what we would do when we saw this DVD issue was emerging, we started to tell the sellers to put on their listing to the buyer before they even bought it. You must have a clean lens on your Xbox before you insert this DVD or it will not work. And then the buyers knew to do that and then they didn't have a dispute. So a lot of what we can do is gather information from the flow of disputes coming in and then make changes upstream Mm -hmm. to prevent the dispute from arising later. If you're purely reactive and you're not changing anything upstream, you're just going to have more and more and more disputes. And, you know, that takes a lot of time and generates a lot of frustration. I guess that's also how businesses or insurance companies, for instance, learn from the mistakes of payouts, they develop and change policy to adopt this jargon you have called upstream, downstream. That's right. One of the challenges in the courts is the courts are very reactive. Okay, a case is filed, what's a fair resolution? But if you see the same case coming in again and again and again, it doesn't make sense to just keep doing reactive. Eventually, you want to go upstream and say, hey, you need to solve this problem. And if you look like in the UK, they have the telecom ombudsman and the financial ombudsman. In the US, we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They have what they call a tripwire. They're getting in complaints. Maybe someone says, this bank charged me the wrong fee 
on my credit card payment. So one person files that complaint and then five person files that complaint and then 50 people file that complaint. It's all the same complaint. It's clear somebody made a mistake. It shouldn't be incumbent upon all of the people that were victims of the mistake to file a case in order to get redress. So then once the tripwire is passed, then those organizations will go to the bank and say, we think you charged the wrong fee. Go do an investigation and find all the people who are charged this wrong fee. And then they say, okay, well, there were 200,000 people that were charged the wrong fee. We're going to go reimburse them. So that's a better way to deal with those mass claims than to try and be reactive. But even better if you can see the stream of disputes coming in and then you can fix it before it gets to hundreds of thousands of people being victimized by the same mistake. So that's why it's so important to build these feedback loops to change the upstream as quickly as you can. The average time to resolution for a complaint on eBay when someone filed, it was like five or six days. And a lot of cases were fixed in a day. Oftentimes, a customer would rather get $5 today than get $50 in five years. You know, we just need to think about how we can provide meaningful, responsive resolutions in the online era Mm -hmm. when it shouldn't have to go through this laborious process of certifying a class and having people fill out paperwork to get their one penny check. How many people does it take to deal with these 60 million cases in five, six days or one day? Or is it just like a lot of things are electronic? Well, yeah. I mean, at the time I was at eBay, we only had 25,000 employees, which sounds like a lot of employees, but that was globally. And we were working in 16 different languages and something like 44 different countries. So again, 60 million disputes sounds like a lot of disputes, but that's less than 1% of our overall transaction volume. eBay at the time was doing more daily transactions than the US stock exchange, the NASDAQ. You know, there was no way we could manually resolve all those cases. Even if all 25,000 of our employees were just mediating disputes all day, we had 12 to 18,000 new cases a day, 60 million a year. What we realized, and one of the reasons why eBay hired me was they said, we have to resolve the vast majority of these cases in software. Eventually, we got to the point where 50% of the cases were resolved by mutual agreement between the buyer and seller. They discussed it and they came up with a solution they could both agree to using our software to structure the negotiation. And 90% of the 60 million cases were resolved in software only. So no eBay employee had to touch the case. We wrote a computer program. The parties went through it. 90% of the cases were resolved before an eBay customer service representative had to engage. But even when a customer service representative did engage, it was very structured. You know, the decision that they had to make was very clear because the software had already gathered all of the appropriate information. Just dealing with that volume and trying to provide those fast and fair resolutions, it was really important that we use software. And that's why I think essentially the courts and everybody are so interested in what eBay did because now they're trying to do kind of the same thing. The courts are paying thousands of dollars to resolve cases over hundreds of dollars, which doesn't really make sense. And it takes six months or eight months or 10 months. So if we could use software to streamline the way the courts work, then maybe we could resolve cases again in a couple weeks. And then the courts wouldn't have to pay for all of the paper shuffling. And you ended up with designing a system that could take care of itself through the help of a software 90% on its own. That's right. Are you an engineer, a clinical engineer, or is it a team coming together, or how does it work? Definitely a team. So I'm a nerd. I love software, but I'm not a coder. 
like to build a system that's going to resolve 60 million disputes, you better get a software engineer who knows what they're doing. I work in what we call in Silicon Valley product. Now, product people, they design the products, like they figure out what does each screen look like? What's the text on each screen? What questions do you ask? And they look at all the data that's generated by the platform, but then they have to take that product design and they give it to a developer. And the developer then creates that design. And then in partnership with the product person, hey, does this work the way we want it to work? And you tweak it and, you know, you make changes over time. You know, there's a lot of different people in the team that design these things, monitor them, launch them, them. prove them. Yeah, test them. There's a, something called QA, quality assurance, mm-hmm. where those are people that come in and say, is this working the way that we expect it to work? You know, and user experience designers, too, that go in and design all the flows and make sure it's intuitive so that people understand what questions are being asked. How do you measure satisfaction in that kind of system design? So that's a really interesting question. One of the things that you can do, obviously, you can ask someone, hey, did you like this process you just went through? But one of the things we found at at eBay is satisfaction surveys like that were highly correlated to outcome. Essentially, the satisfaction metrics were not a good indication of whether or not the process was operating well. We had to look deeper at the data. And we wanted to look at the actual behavior of people that went through the process, not just self-reported satisfaction. One of the things very common in Silicon Valley and a lot of industries too, they use a metric called net promoter score, which is not simply how much did you like this process from one to 10? Because that's correlated outcome. Net promoter score asks, how likely would you be to recommend this process to a friend or family member? And the reason why that's interesting is because then it's not about your outcome. It's about, do you think this process was fair and was it well designed? And so that gets you a little bit closer to the the question you're really trying to answer. But then even that promoter score, those results were skewed on the basis of outcome. But once we started to look at the data of once someone went through the process, did they increase their use of eBay and PayPal or did they decrease their use of eBay and PayPal? But what we found is people that went through the resolution process, even if they lost, they increased their usage of eBay and PayPal faster than people that never had a dispute in the first place. Hmm. So that's the key success metric in determining whether or not the process is delivering what we need it to deliver, which is people trusting the site. Right. Experience is breeding increased trust, even though the process outcome didn't make them quite happy, if I can summarize. That's exactly right. When you say this started with e-commerce, but then it moved on to other subjects like i'm thinking for instance all these delivery services it's a service to your door for immediate consumption and they have now adopted those kind of dispute resolution mechanisms as well right you're absolutely right yeah if you look at services websites like airbnb or lyft or doordash when we were doing dispute resolution for tangible items like on eBay. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't like this item. We'll ship it back and then you can get your money back. But if it's a service and somebody comes and gives you a massage and you're like, well, it's a bad massage. Well, I can't return the massage. The service provider did the work. So we have to find a different resolution. If you look at a lot of those websites, they also have resolution centers now and they work a little bit differently than eBay. You can't just use shipping and tracking. You have to use other matrices. Mm -hmm. Really all online purchase websites, they have to have a redress flow. And I think ODR evolved to meet the needs of those different types of transactions. You have to, quote unquote, fit the forum to the fuss. So you can't just take the eBay resolution process and glom it onto Airbnb because it's not a buyer-seller dispute. It's a host and guest dispute. And in Lyft, it's a rider-passenger dispute. ODR is now flowering. We're seeing so many applications of ODR in so many different contexts. And the courts are embracing ODR as well. Even if you go to the public option, you are going to get access to 
online dispute resolution options, which is great. I think the more is better. I personally am interested in resolving these cases before they get to court. Let's assume that the case is not about the delivery of a thing to a customer or about a service. Maybe sure. you're being discriminated at work and maybe a lot of people, a lot of women are being discriminated at work. Absolutely. Maybe they're getting less money than men for the same job. So how do you address these issues if you are taking them out of the court system? This is a very important conversation, not just for ODR, but for dispute resolution writ large. Right. And I think there are people who say, you know, like these mandatory pre-dispute arbitration clauses in employment contracts, as you say, people are harassed at work, they get injured at work, and then they're put in into an arbitration process that they perceive as being unfair, right. you know, that's more biased in favor of the business than if they were to go to the public courts. Now, there are some studies that show that arbitration is not more biased towards the company. And I've done a lot of work with the American Arbitration Association. I mean, a lot of the people who are their arbitrators are former judges, you know, people from right. the public sector. There are some reasons why it does make sense to take these cases into a dispute resolution process. I personally am not a fan of preventing people from accessing the courts. I want to provide a really effective dispute resolution process that can resolve 99%, hopefully, of the cases, and then that 1% still has the right to go to court. Pre-dispute binding arbitration clauses, to me, are the wrong direction. Effective private dispute resolution is the right direction. Maybe it would be, as you say, a mediation process. Maybe it would be a MEDARB process. Maybe it would be an evaluative mediation process or a non-binding arbitration. Who knows? Workplace is a very promising area, and there are lots of cases there. I would have said at the beginning of ODR when I first started doing this in 99-2000 that like workplace cases and divorce cases, those are very relationship-based. Right. I thought the sweet spot for ODR was a little bit more transactional. That was why I was focusing on the e-commerce stuff. If you look at the areas where ODR has been deployed in the courts, a lot of them are low-dollar value civil cases. So you right. see debt collection. You see landlord-tenant, as you mentioned, eviction. You see small claims kinds of cases. Now, those are not normally family and workplace type cases. Those are more transactional. But now we're seeing a lot of traction with ODR in the family context. Hmm. You know, family mediation is very well established. And I think that we're seeing lots of ODR services emerge around the world to do that. Workplace, I agree with you. There's a lot of promise there. And we're seeing some traction there as well. You know, another area that's hugely interesting is public disputes. So one of the things we did right after I left eBay was we started doing property tax assessment appeals. Mm -hmm. So when the government says you owe this much in taxes, mm -hmm. you can say, no, that's wrong. You know, you've overvalued my house or whatever. That was a huge area for us. So I think there are lots of government type case volumes. And I know the UK is looking very aggressively at this. You know, the Civil Justice Council, led by Richard Susskind and a few of my friends in the ODR community, they've pitched the creation of something called Her Majesty's Online Court. And they're looking at some examples from like British Columbia, the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Mm -hmm. How can we use technology to get faster, more efficient resolutions? And there is a lot of talk about how technology can help expand access to justice right. and pr provide more efficient redress for people in low dollar value cases. Legal aid organizations in the United States, legal service bureaus are chronically underfunded and they turn away a lot of people because they just don't have the resources to take care of them. So any way that we can resolve these cases earlier using technology effectively, but keeping costs down, that's good. So I think a lot of nonprofits and foundations in the United States are promoting ODR as a way of expanding access to justice. Even if it's a yeah. low-value case, there is a digital divide. We see it now in the COVID response. Not everybody is taking advantage of online education. So how is that going to work? 
Well, I will say when I first started doing this work in 99, 2000, 2001, this was the number one concern. People would say, if you're going to use technology to build a justice system, you're essentially building a justice system only for rich people because only rich people have technology. That was a valid concern. I mean, it remains a valid concern. But what's happened since 2001 is we've seen a democratization in terms of access to technology pretty significantly. One is mobile. You know, the fact is we didn't have iPhones. We didn't have Android phones in 2001. And now we've created those. Of course, it's still a thousand bucks to get a really fancy phone. But it's amazing how many other options exist now. I mean, it used to be you'd have to pay a thousand dollars to get a laptop. There was no cheaper laptop. Whereas now you can get a Google Chromebook or you can get a phone, you know, like even a burner phone that you get at the drugstore for 20 bucks. It has a lot of the functionality in an Android phone. So, you know, even in the developing world, they're starting to give away tablets because it's cheaper than books. 93% of people access the internet on a daily basis, and the number's continuing to grow. I'm amazed when I go to India. You know, there are people that sleep on cardboard boxes in the street, but they have their phone with them. Like, that's their lifeline. I think that we're getting to a point where, essentially, access to the internet is so ubiquitous, the concerns about digital divide are reduced. But it's much less of an issue than it was 10 years ago. And I think 10 years from now, it'll be even less of an issue. I'm from Turkey. In 47 courts, they started with trial versions of e-courts. What do you think of the future of e-courts? Well, I'm very optimistic about e-courts. I think there was a lot of resistance within the judiciary to doing things online, but the pandemic has changed a lot of minds because, you know, they had to figure out a way to keep things moving. So what they essentially did was they brought in video and now we're doing a lot of court processes over video and they've improved a little bit the online filing. There's a long way to go in terms of bringing the courts totally online. And the courts are not really built to innovate in the same way that private companies, because there's no competitor to the courts. So if they build a clunky technology process, well, everybody still has to use it. I think that the courts are starting to accelerate their innovation around ODR and their use of technology. But I think society is going at 50 miles per hour and the courts were going at 10 miles per hour. And now the courts are going at 20 miles per hour. It is encouraging to see all of the work that's being done by courts around the world and their interest in ODR to figure out how they can leverage some of those tools. One of the things that I do worry about is we see all these ODR organizations cropping up all over the world. One of the reasons why we only have one court system is because there can be a lot of abuses in the court system. If you have private courts, it may be that somebody's taking payments on the back end in order to decide cases one way or the other way. Or it may be that they say, yeah, we'll protect the privacy of your information when in fact they're secretly sharing it with other parties. So one of the things I worry about is that some of these ODR providers are not going to be living up to the ethical standards we have in the dispute resolution field. So we've created an organization called ICODER, the International Council for Online Dispute Resolution. And we have a set of ethical standards and best practices. And what we do is we want to go out and audit essentially these ODR providers and ensure that they're living up to these standards. And if somebody has a complaint about an ODR process that they've worked with, well, iCoder can receive that complaint and then kind of do an investigation and try and fix the abuse. I think the opportunity outweighs the challenges. The ability to expand access to fair redress for people through the use of technology is unparalleled. This is the biggest opportunity we've had to expand access to justice in at least the last hundred years. So we should take advantage of it. But we have to be cognizant of some of the challenges too. And that's what iCoder is about is trying to mitigate some of those potential downsides. I guess in the ODR world, you don't yet have JAMS or ICC or any other credible ODR service providers. I think that trustworthy arbitration has really centered on these institutional providers, as you say. 
But in the mediation world, that hasn't been true. I don't think we're going to see one or two big ODR providers emerge, a la Jams or AAA. I think all of these organizations are going to use ODR. Jams and AAA, again, they're doing thousands of online processes. You know, they're using video conferencing and their own in-house tools. ODR is not necessarily, it's a what, it's more of a how. Different people are using this toolbox to design their own redress processes, and they're just integrating technology into the way that they provide fast and fair resolutions. And that's good. India is essentially digitizing all the payments in their country. You know, the Modi government has actually banned certain levels of currency because they want everybody to be engaging in digital payments so that they can track the payments. And they recently decided, you know what, we're going to require all Indian payors through this system to have access to ODR. I mean, we're talking about more than a billion people and they all are going to get access to ODR. So the National Payments Corporation of India, NPCI, they're now coming together and saying, well, how are we going to design this ODR? But they're partnering with iCoder to ensure that that process is ethical, transparent, neutral, secure, all the things that iCoder is focused on. So that's a good example of a government coming in and saying, all right, you know what? We're going to provide access to ODR for more than a billion people. We're going to set the rules and everybody can operate within those rules. So I think we're going to see more of that. The European Union passed a regulation a few years ago requiring the consumers have access to ODR when they buy things online. So I think it's going to become the new normal. I just think people are going to expect if they have a problem, they can go to a website and they can work it out and they'll use ODR. And that ODR may be provided by a government, it may be provided by a nonprofit, it may be provided by a private company, but it will all be governed under this set of ethical standards. So you know that you're going to get a fair resolution process. Let's now talk about Mediate.com. How did it come about? How did you reach this amazing volume today that you have? Well, Mediate.com actually was created 25 years ago. And I was actually the first employee that was hired by the founders, you know, two pioneers in dispute resolution in the US. And they hired me in 1999. So Mediate.com is really the number one mediation website in the world. There's just an overwhelming amount of content there in terms of news stories and interviews. And so you could spend a whole weekend, you know, pouring through that content and barely scratch the surface. Mediate recently brought me back to be CEO. I'm really honored about that. We've now launched also Arbitrate, com because arbitration obviously is related to mediation. So I think Mediate wants to be the online home for the global dispute resolution field. We're putting together a lot of tools. We have a service called Mediation Express where we do online mediation. We have a platform called Caseload Manager that you can use to manage your practice because we really want to be the, the digital toolbox for mediators and arbitrators and dispute resolution organizations around the world. Right now, I think we're primarily focused on English language geographies. So we have Mediate Canada, we have Mediate India, but a lot of the tools that we're building are explicitly multilingual. The new point of access to justice is going to be the cell phone. That's what it is. People need to be able to pull it out 24-7 and say, I have a problem and get a quick and efficient and fair resolution right there on the phone. So that's what we're aimed at. Someone contacted me who's created a website called ODR Poland. Someone created a website called ODR Caribbean, ODR India and ODR China. So we're seeing lots of experiments and, and national websites roll out. And my goal at Mediate.com is to give them everything they need in order to be successful. Software, expertise, consulting. I would love anyone who's interested in getting involved with this, contact Contact me, go to ODR.info. You know, we'd love to bring you into the community and you can see all the resources that we have available. And I think it's a very, very exciting time. We're just in the foothills of this mountain climb, but it, it's going to be exciting when we get to the top. I don't thank you so much for this. No, thank I, you so much. This is great. I learned again so many things and remembered so many things. Thank you for your great questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad Sheila connected us. Me too. In today's program, my guest was Colin Rule. 
He explained how online dispute resolution was an outcome of e-commerce, something we came to appreciate more and more during this COVID pandemic. He described how the ODR system design had to fit the type of e-commerce business that was being provided and how the satisfaction of customers can be measured. He explained how in future ODR could expand to other areas such as family, public disputes, and even employment. He also talked about Mediate.com, the huge website with endless subjects in the field, iCoder, and ethics of ODR. So I hope you enjoy the program. I will upload a picture of Colin in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Serang Yaktan who allowed me to use their materials as a picture and in the introduction and closing of this podcast. Lastly, I thank Efsane Shimal Yalçın for her translation. Thank you and see you in the next program. We can find a way. Idil Elverish presented.